All right, church, if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 46. This is God's word kindly addressing us this morning. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one from each tribe. And they turned, and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents, And said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, you have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, And your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, 
they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness, in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days. The days you remained there. I want to start off by asking a question. What is the most dangerous and detrimental thing that mankind has ever faced? Out of all the things that we've faced in, the, in our history since creation, what is the most dangerous thing to our lives? Some might say that in view of you know, the past century and current events, you might say, you know, nuclear warfare, that might be up there. If you have an allergy, maybe you would say peanuts or a bee sting. Drugs or driving under the influence, shark attacks, grizzly bears. You know, as residents of Virginia, we pray that the 95% of the world's populations of spiders don't become a hive mind and take over the world. Others might go more internal with their answer poor self-esteem or depression, cyberbullying, not feeling the freedom to express yourself or to believe the things that you believe you ought to, to believe, sexual expression, inequity of outcomes. This past summer, my family and I, we went down to Florida for family vacation. And as most people do in Florida, you got to go to the water somehow, some way. So whether the pool or the beach, and for the Collins family, we went to the beach, or excuse me, the pool, not the beach. We went to the pool. <laughs> so here we are at a pool, and Porter is two, and as every parent knows, the pool or water for a young child can either be really, really awesome, and there's a lot of great photos, or there's a lot of screaming and crying, and we had that. That was us. <laughs> so, so Porter, we were at this pool, and I'm holding Porter in the water. I'm trying to get him to have a good time. I'm really trying. So he's sitting on my hand, and my hand's just below the water. And we're like, hey, Porter, don't you see? This is really fun. And, and he's like, no, not at all. He's screaming over and over again. Daddy, let me hold you. Let me hold you. Let me hold you. You know? And, and Porter's perception of the joy of the pool and of the fear of the pool was 100% correlated to his perception of his grip on the situation. What he needed in that moment wasn't swim lessons or the Boy Scout manual. It was my presence and a trust in my loving care. It robbed him of joy to not trust me, and it would have killed him to presume safety without my presence in that pool. 
Porter's action would do nothing to help mitigate any legitimate fear of that situation. What mattered for my son in that moment was not his grip on me, but an awareness of my grip on him. Porter's issue in that pool was unbelief. And that's my answer to the question I posed this morning. That's what I would humbly submit. The greatest danger and the most detrimental thing for mankind is spiritual unbelief. Spiritual unbelief. This passage that we're studying this morning is arguably one of the most vivid illustrations of the human problem that we see throughout all of Scripture. Spiritual unbelief is the sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. The serpent tempted them with the question, did God really say that? And then they didn't believe. Spiritual unbelief took root. When God promised Abraham a child through Sarah, she laughed at the Lord because of spiritual unbelief. She didn't think that God could accomplish his will with the limitations of her age. She thought the time of his faithfulness to her had passed. No way God could do that or that he would keep his promises. Doubting Thomas in the Gospels with Christ, no way the Lord is alive. I saw him die. And Jesus said, touch my hands, touch my side. Think of Peter when he walked on the water, when he was overwhelmed, took his eyes off of the Lord, and he fell. Unbelief, overwhelmed by circumstances, and Christ in mercy extended his hand to save him. In Mark 9, Jesus spoke of the father to a father of a demon-possessed boy. All things are possible for those who believe. And what does the boy's father respond with? I believe. Help my unbelief. Spiritual unbelief is also very prevalent today. When we think about evangelism, that's the rub. It's not so much about logic or methodology, though we have studied as a church, that that matters. Being excellent in evangelism matters, but it's not a, a method of, hey, let me just win you to a perspective. If you just had the information that I had, you would be a Christian. What we're combating is someone's spiritual unbelief. For us personally, in every role that the Lord has ordained for us to function in, as an employee, as an employer, a father or mother, a husband or wife, a member of a local church, or as an individual Christian. All sin is related to spiritual unbelief. Say that again. All sin is related to spiritual unbelief. If you're a community group leader, this would be a great question to explore as a group. Jesus in John 16, 9 says this, that God will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. My definition of spiritual unbelief is this. Spiritual unbelief is not trusting that God is who he said he is and will accomplish his purposes and promises like he said he would. Let's say that again. Spiritual unbelief is not trusting that God is who he said he is and will accomplish his purposes and promises like he said he would. So as we dive into this passage this morning, 
This is what I'd, I'd say we should take away. This is our response to spiritual unbelief and to the unbelief of Israel, which barred them from the promised land. Trust in King Jesus for the fears of today because he is the Lord who mightily saved you in the gospel and lovingly cares for your every need. Trust in King Jesus for the fears of today because he is the Lord who mightily saved you in the gospel and lovingly cares for your every need. This is something that honestly you could put on your mirror and like we need this regardless of the passage that we're preaching, regardless of the circumstance that we're walking through, we need this. We need to remind ourselves of the remedy to spiritual unbelief, to believe that the Lord is who he said he is and he's done a mighty work and regardless what I'm going through, he is worthy of my trust because he is the Lord and he is near regardless how far I feel him to be. The remedy for our spiritual unbelief is a divine perspective of who God is and what he's done in the face of our circumstances. Everybody, everybody and their mom agrees with, we need a divine perspective of God. I need to know who God is and what he's done and promised. In the face of my circumstances though, if you wrestle with that part, that changes the whole tone that changes the whole tone of it. You want me, so, so when I am really wrestling with my finances, when I had a drag out fight with my, my spouse, when I'm you know, in an argue with my children or I just got fired from my job, you're saying there is where I need a divine perspective? Yes. And that's what this scripture, this passage, this story informs us of this morning. So as we prayerfully study together Deuteronomy, I want us to pull the hot coals of our circumstances close to the burden of this text. I want us to, to cozy up next to it, and I want you to think about what you're currently going through. This isn't an abstract, informational get-together where we talk about the Bible. This is the Lord speaking to us in our current circumstances to bring us joy and comfort and the only place it is found, which is the cross of Christ. In chapter one, Moses reminds the people of what happened the last time they were here at Kadesh Barnea and the consequences of unbelief. The point of this passage, Deuteronomy one, is to highlight the propensity of Israel to not trust God in the present or the future despite his wondrous deeds in Egypt and the provisions in the wilderness. And so as we look at this, it's gonna fall into three different scenes, if you will, three different scenes. So scene one, scene one's gonna be an unexpected response, scene two, God's recalling of salvation, and scene three is gonna be faithless Israel, okay? So let's dive in to scene one. So scene one is gonna be verses 18, or excuse me, 19 through 28, an unexpected response, a trustworthy promise met by testing. Scene one. So let's look at verse 19 again. That's what we did a lot of verses this morning. It's a long story. So let's go back to the beginning. Verse 19. Notice with me, this is the setting of the stage for this story. This is where we're starting now. God's people have traveled from Mount Sinai and now they're at Kadesh Barnea, almost to the promised land. Kadesh Barnea is just south of Canaan. Uh, they're, not at the, they're, they're not at the Jordan River about to cross 
But this is a pivotal moment. This is the moment of faith for Israel. Will they go or will they stay? And I want you to notice two things from this verse as we get started. Not only is this verse telling us where they came from and why they're there. First, I want you to notice the Lord has brought them through the great and terrifying wilderness. Do you notice that? Did you notice that theme throughout this whole passage? Great and terrifying, terrifying, they're greater, taller, fortified, all this. So we see the context is that we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw and Israel made it through. God was faithful to them to bring them here. So the first thing that we see is that God has faithfully brought them through a horrible or a terrifying wilderness to a new terrifying circumstance to trust them in. And it kind of foreshadows how terrifying the Amorites are going to be. Second, I want you to notice that this is exactly what the Lord commanded. God led them through it and he's leading them to another. So now that Israel is at Kadesh Barnea, having traveled through fearful lands and arrived at a fearful place, right at the door of the promised land, what does God say? Verses 20 through 21. I want you to first notice, let's read it together again, and then let's, let's start. What, what does the Lord have for us here? And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So we see from this verse, in these two verses, that the Lord is giving them the land. Giving and take possession as a gift. The Lord is gifting them the land. And, and maybe you're sitting here, and then also notice the, the, the commands He's saying to take possession. He's saying, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. The most repeated imperative in all of scripture is do not fear. And we see that here. We see that in this verse. But maybe you're asking the question, why is the Lord giving this land? We have to think all the way back and remember Genesis, Genesis 12 to be specific. God made a promise to Abraham, made a covenant, and he promised him three things. God made a covenant to give him, make him a nation, to give him a name, to be a blessing, and land. And so when God in this chapter of Deuteronomy says, here's the land that I'm giving to you, this is the Lord after centuries fulfilling his promise. They'd been in Egypt for 400 years, laying bricks and growing into a nation. And here we are, they're left, they're in the wilderness, and they're about to take the land. And God is saying, remember that promise I made? It's here. Was it in the timing that they thought? Was it in the manner that they thought? No. The Lord is faithful. And the thing about the Abrahamic covenant promise is that it was unilateral, one-sided. Promise between two parties, one-sided. And what God did was they, they split animals, really cool stuff, um, split animals. And what you would typically do, like me and Josh Kruger, we'd make a promise, very typical. We'd split animals. We'd hold hands and we'd walk in between them. And we'd say, you know, Josh, I commit to eat steaks for the rest of my life. And if I don't, 
then, then may I be like these animals that are dead on the ground if I break my promise. That's typically how a covenant would go down. But what God does is that Abraham sleeps and God alone walks through it and says, if I break this promise, so be it to me. And the Lord will not break his promise. It's not based on Abraham. It's not based on his faithfulness. It's based on the Lord's faithfulness. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing not only God's goodness in a present circumstance of leading these people out of Egypt and providing uh, their every need as they traveled from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. We also see God's promises being fulfilled over centuries in these moments, which informs what we're doing here. The Lord is meeting us through our individual circumstances, but the Lord is also faithful to his church over centuries. Since Christ has gone to be at the right hand of the Father, he promised that he will return and he is working all things together for good. And so as we are informed by Abraham here in the Abrahamic covenant, it kind of, when you're reading this, if you're, if you're I mean, imagining like the, the, the Deuteronomy sitcom, this is kind of an unexpected turn of the story that, that oh my goodness, okay, the Lord has fulfilled his promise and they're gonna march on in and, and yet the story takes a huge turn. Israel goes, hey, wait, wait, you know, let, let's wait a minute. Let's, uh, let's, let's check that out. Let's, 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 let's pray about it before we go in there. Even though the Lord has commanded, go take possession of it. They ask, where should we go? Let's send some spies into Canaan to make sure that we, we, uh, we need to go that way. And really that's just, we, we know as the readers, this is a foreshadowing that the, the, the point of the spies was that they, they were trying to avoid the Amorites. That was the point. Uh, let's see, we, what's on our wish list? We don't want to go see the Amorites. Let's go send spies. Oh, look, there's Amorites. Looks like we got to turn around. That's, that's where the story's leading. And so they send these spies into the land to see if God's trustworthy. And when they send the spies, it is, it is humorous, ironic, and comforting what we read in verse 25. What do the spies say when they return? It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. When you read that word good in this verse, where else in the first couple books of the Bible can you recall the word good? Genesis, Garden of Eden, creation. God said it was Good. And so this is hearkening the reader to go, this is exactly the place that God wants us. It's like Eden in there, and the Lord is giving it to us. But what's Israel's response? Literally, the spies out of their mouths just said that. And then they, they say, where are we to go up? To Eden, that's where you're supposed to be going. Our brothers have made our hearts melt. Verse 28, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. That's not a Star Wars reference. There's an M, not an N. Israel becomes consumed with the fears of the Canaanites and their inability in, face, in the face of God's promise and provision. Israel saw Canaan when they should have been seeing the Lord. That's the takeaway. 
But how often can we relate to that temptation? How many of us get overwhelmed by the fears of our circumstances in light of what God has done and what he's promised to do? This is why spiritual unbelief is just such a great summary of our condition. As Christians, we can be flooded with the great and terrifying nature of our employment, our bank account, the state of our marriage, the well-being of our children, the overwhelming temptation to sin, the lack of self-control that we might have in our lives, and forget that God is good, that he is present, and that he wants to work in that. Not removing that great and terrifying circumstance, but that he is where, that's where he has led you, and he is working in that and through that. He led them out of terrifying Egypt, he led them through a terrifying wilderness, and he's led them to the terrifying Amorites. And he's been faithful in Egypt, he's been faithful in the wilderness, and he's going to be faithful in Canaan. Church, the crown of our circumstances is his faithfulness. Our circumstances tempt us like that snake did in the garden to say that Jesus didn't die for me or for this. There's no way God is in this circumstance. If only God had seen this kind of situation going on in 2022 in my household, he would have made a better promise to me. There's no way he's going to redeem that. No way that he's working for my good. All is lost. He saved me so that I could just suffer under this sin, so that I could just suffer in this circumstance, so that I could be in this misery. Yay, my sins are forgiven, but my life today till death looks rather grim. Have you seen how tall the Amorites are? Have you seen how fortified your heavenly will is in my life? I can't get to your will, Lord. I can't get to your love because of my circumstance my fear. Have you seen the state of my marriage? Have you seen the hours that I'm working? I don't get to hang out with my kids. Have you seen the hours of of time that I'm wrestling through this situation? No way that you're providing and your presence is definitely not here. I know it's over there. I can't get there because I'm here. And what Israel lacks is the same thing that we lack, a divine perspective in light of our circumstances. In this room, in the comforts of this room, church, amen is expected. But when you're alone and you're suffering, this is a hard thing to grasp and faith is needed. And my encouragement is not to muster it. Just, just you know, throw some dirt on it and, you know, push on. The point is that we can trust Jesus even in that circumstance. His his promises aren't paper thin. They don't blow like chaff there, and for some people it's true, and for other people it's not. His, his, His word, his promises are like 24 karat gold. They're weighty, and they're worthy, and you can cash it into the bank even where you're at today. The other thing is that this passage is convicting for us as the church, as Christians, for me personally, because what we fail to see is the same thing that they fail to see, but it pales in comparison to what we have inherited, where they're just trying to inherit land, as God promised. We have inherited Christ Jesus, and where they were saved from Egypt, 
Our Exodus event was the cross of Christ. Sin and death were destroyed. Unbelief is a forgetting of who we are and who God is. And our belief robs us of this joy. Unbelief belittles the work of God in our lives and it puffs up like a balloon all of our fears, all of our pride, all of our insecurity, because the bedrock for our trust is displaced from where it should be as the creature in the creator, in God who is our savior. And it puts us on shaky ground. That's what unbelief does for us. Whatever that thing is right in front of you, that's what's robbing you of the joy of what the Lord has given you. This isn't like a name and claim the gospel. If you are a believer, the Lord has given you this inheritance. And as you saw with Israel, he has saved, he is their God. He leads them and loves them and carries them like a man who carries his son, yet they couldn't see it. And that's the same rub for us. So quickly, let's look at verse 32. Verse 32, if you wanted a verse to help us understand the point of this passage, not that you need much, you just read that story and you you get it, but this is Moses' assessment. This is the narrator assessment of the story. You did not believe the Lord your God. The story and this story is about Israel's unbelief. This isn't a text about land. This isn't uh, an allegory for us to, to claim the land to, give, to get something like wealth or prosperity in our life or freedom from our circumstances. Again, when you read verse 19 and you read all the descriptors of the Amorites, we understand that the Lord is not looking to get rid of their circumstances, but to work through their circumstances. The land is a, is a minor point in one sense. The point is that faith was commanded and that it was met by unbelief. Will you trust me for the land? Will you trust me for the Amorites? This is about the Lord putting his people in a place of dependence on him. Think about, think about the Egyptian newspaper that probably hit that week. Like massive, you know, millions of people out in the wilderness surrounded by deadly snakes and a bunch of nations. Will they survive? There's all ways that, they, that Moses could have written the story. All sorts of, of, of different angles that he could have hit. He could have talked about, yeah, well, you know, the Israelites had pitchforks and the Amorites had swords and this was a really terrifying event and I just want you to get like, oh, isn't that just scary? That's not even the point. Moses' whole point in this is there was two main characters. There was God who is faithful and faithless Israel. That's the point. And for us, what is the newspaper of our lives? Oftentimes, we're the ones going, well, yeah. when I'm in care group, oh my goodness, well, this is just crazy. This is going on in my life. And here's the Amorites and here's the wilderness and here's my lack of food and all this stuff. And where is the Lord? I, I'm there. I do that. And how much does that mirror what happened to the Israelites? We can be so consumed by our circumstances and forget the main character, which is the Lord, your God. So this first scene, we see that the Lord's promises, 
that makes the promise and the people's response with testing. And then the Lord gives a foretaste of that promise. This is a good land that the Lord is giving us. And that, that taste of a promise fulfilled is met by unbelief in its ugliest form. And this next scene is the Lord's response to that generation. So scene two, scene two, verses 29 through 40, God's faithfulness to his people and his bestowal of judgment and mercy. Verses 29 through 33 is one of the sweetest passages. We're not going to read it. But Daniel Block helpfully observes that this passage describes God as warrior, guide, and father. And Christian, that is no less relevant for us today in this room. Warrior, guide, father. Just from verse 30, if you want to glance at that, you can see that it is God who goes before Israel. It is God who fights for Israel. And it is God who has been faithful to Israel. Where Israel has been faithless and unbelieving, God has provided and has been trustworthy. You know, God not only has integrity, but he has power. You know, for, for you and I, we might have a sum of integrity, but I don't have position or authority to get things done the way that God can get things done. God is trustworthy, 24 karat gold, and he is the Lord God. He is powerful, able to do what he has promised to do. And he has fought, he has guided lovingly, and in this, in this passage, like a father who carries his son, he loves us, church. This isn't so often we, we think that, and we'll get to this in a minute, we think that, oh my goodness, it's just like faithful Israel and God just got in this promise. I think he, it's like, it's like the, the, um, the, the app services agreement that no one reads. It's, it's as, like we can get into this mindset that we think God's like that, where he's like, oh yeah, sure, let's agree, boop. Oh no, dang it, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with an unfaithful people. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I did. But we can, I'm tempted to that way that we don't think that the Lord loves us. But this text informs otherwise. If you are memorizing verses throughout Deuteronomy, verses 30 through 32 would be a great couple to memorize. This is a, a wonderful promise to meditate on. But the point of God reminding them of these points is not merely that trusting and believing in the Lord is a wise decision, as if that's where the period should fall. The point is that this is the right decision. Remember John 16, that the Lord is judging the world because of their belief. And that is what we see, that spiritual unbelief is an affront and treason to God, and it has consequences. It wasn't neutral for Israel to go, no, nah, not today. They were barred from the land because of it. They had misplaced faith, which then resulted in judgment. Verses 34 through 35 are a result of verse 32. You're prohibited from the land because of your unbelief. But this is one of my favorite parts of this passage, as if it doesn't get any better from the first first couple that we were just referenced. There's three persons and groups that are given mercy from this generation. 
Caleb, Joshua, and the children. So look with me at Caleb. We see that God mercifully allows him to enter the land and Moses lets us know exactly why he's allowed to enter the land because he has wholly followed the Lord. Notice what Pastor Moses is doing in this moment. He has told us unbelief is the reason why you're being judged. The inverse of that, trust. Yet what's the descriptor of Caleb? He wholly follows the Lord. Why didn't he say he trusts? That could have been a word because his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar or what? Caleb, by his faith, was judged as righteous. Not only do we see that he is an example of faith, but we also see him as an example of true Israel. So where Israel failed, not all of Israel is Israel. True Israel is the ones not being outwardly circumcised, but a circumcision of the heart, faith, a newness of heart, a new birth. But yet Caleb, he represents true Israel by that inward, inward heart change. And the interesting fact about Caleb, if you didn't know this, he's not an Israelite in a formal sense of the word. He is uh, a Kenizzite, which this is, <laughs> Caleb, you're making up these names. No, I'm, they're, they're real. <laughs> The Kenizzites, so he is from, it doesn't matter. He was a Kenizzite <laughs> who is a descendant of the Edomites and the Edomites, Esau, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, whom I loved, Esau, whom I hated. And we see the Lord's grace and mercy to Gentiles even in this. Who's faithful Israel? Who wholly follows the Lord? A Gentile. Which is just a foreshadowing of what we see in the New Testament. The good news of Jesus Christ isn't just reserved for Jews, it's reserved for Gentiles. All of us in the room said amen. And God's people, the sons of Abraham, are not those circumcised coming from a Jewish heritage, but the mark of the covenant is faith. Now there's one more thing I want to note about Caleb that is important for us today. Caleb's faithfulness resulted in him and his family going into the promised land. Holy followed the Lord, a righteous man. And where did that first generation end up? Dead and in the wilderness. His faith could not save another soul. For us, there was a faithful Israelite who wholly follow the Lord. To die for an unbelieving people who deserve to be in that wilderness. Jesus Christ, by his righteousness, represents us so that we don't need to be in that desert. We don't have to die alone. Unbelief isn't the last word for us. What a great Lord that we save. That the God who carries us and guides us and fights for us would die for us. God himself would die for us. The growth of, of revelation that we see in the Bible, it's already good when we read Deuteronomy 1. This is already an encouraging word that he's my warrior, my guide, and my father. But the fact that he himself is savior, that he would become man for me, 
knowing full and well who I am? The gospel is good news. And Christ Jesus, our king, is worthy of our trust. We also see Joshua is given mercy and allowed to enter the land. And I think it's just interesting, this is just a note, that the first person commended isn't Joshua who's going to lead the people into Israel. It's Caleb, which again, I think is just a pastoral point by Moses of what is treasured. And, and, And little did he know the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that connection to the book of Acts, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of the kingdom of God. The last group is the children, the children of this evil generation. So look with me, parents. The first thing that I want to note for us, and this is, this is coming right as a, as a, as a father of two, they didn't want to go in the land because they thought their children would be prey. And notice, <laughs> like, notice the good nature God-given concerns for your children can be a rock if overturned. There could be unbelief. They, they, the Israelites in this story have been looking for any reason not to go in the promised land. The cities are big. They're taller. The sons of Anakim are there. Our children would be prey. Oh, what a loving concern. When you read the story, you realize, no, that's, that's unbelief in forming that decision. But this, this word isn't just for parents. Unbelief loves hiding in religious things, in good things in commendable things. And all of us are very good at hiding our sin the older and older we get. So may this be a pause for us to ask the Lord, would you please, please overturn those rocks in my life? I want to imitate Christ. I don't want to imitate the world. I don't want unbelief in my heart. Because often when we do self-reflection, we go, well, I've got, you know, my kids are doing great. My, I'm, me, and, me and my wife love each other paying my mortgage, you know, going to work, all this stuff. But if you start uplifting and turning things over, you might be finding things like the Israelites. But the reason why the children are allowed in the land, notice with me, they have no knowledge of good and evil. Where does that harken back again? Genesis round three, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. It's for the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And this is so applicable, church, parents, on so many different fronts. This descriptor harkens back to Eden, but this shows the Lord's heart and care for children, that his judgment does not fall harshly on children in this passage. This informs our care and love for children. In a culture that is so voraciously attacking the family unit, the authority of parents, the security and guidance of parents. This verse speaks to us in a culture that is currently promoting the self-mutilation of children to allow children to make decisions that will impact their bodies and mental health and their flourishment as human beings for the rest of their lives. This verse speaks to us. The dignity of children and the proper place of parents as guardians and disciplers of your children. Your God-given role, parents, is to guard and to nurture and protect your children. For while they're young, they do not have the knowledge of good and evil. They need your gospel-centered, biblically wise care in their lives. Your charge is to steward that innocence and protect it, to raise up biblically literate, gospel-articulate disciples of Christ. 
So after giving these three groups, he then turns his gaze back to Israel and he tells them where they should go. So as a reminder, we're going to look at, look at verse 23 really quickly. Israel wanted to double check when I sent the spies, where should we go? Verse 28, Israel asks again, where are we going up? Look at God's reminder of his provision in verse 23. Who went before you in the way to seek you out of place to show you by what way you should go? All these reminders. And now look at verse 40. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. God was clear before and he's being just as clear now through the change of plans. Whereas they once were heading towards the promised land and towards blessing, they're now heading in the direction of the Red Sea, which is associated with, this is now a new book, Exodus. This is Egypt. Slavery. Suffering. The thing that they were wanting to go back to, yeah, you can head that way. This verse cues us in on the unmistakable reality that this evil generation is in judgment, which leads us to the last scene of the story, verses 41 through 46. Scene three, faithless Israel reaping the fruits of unbelief. So God had given us, just given the command to turn around and to head towards the Red Sea. Yet what is Israel's response? Like there was a command that, that was a command, turn and go. That was, that, no, no question about it. That wasn't like some, a statement, a proverb. You could choose to live by this. He commanded them, turn and go to the Red Sea. And then what is Israel's response in verse 41? We will go up into that hill country and defeat the Amorites just as the Lord commanded. That was not the command. <laughs> You're not listening. <laughs> oh man. Yet Israel ignores the command and they go up and they don't trust the Lord and they try to fight the Amorites and they're scattered like bees and they're beat down. And as a parent, I'm reading this and I'm just going, oh, delayed obedience is disobedience. That is, that is the truth that we're seeing here. And it's, it's sad. It's a tad humorous, ironically humorous, but it's also informative for us in the consequences of unbelief. Church, unbelief makes us hard of hearing. Unbelief makes us hard of hearing. When we're not accustomed to trusting the Lord, we're not going to hear the Lord. And there are seasons that we all can attest to of, you know what? I was living my life. The Lord was talking. Retrospectively, when we look back in the rearview mirror, the Lord was definitely there. He was speaking to me through his word. I was just choosing not to listen. So let that be a charge for us to sharpen our trust because we were made to be knit into the Lord and there's no safer place to be than in his presence. Unbelief also makes us presumptuous. Notice how they just presumed the Lord's presence. And, and I think this is one of, the, one of the things that when you think about the, the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's not, that, although there is application for it of saying, oh my, fill in the blank. That's not the point. The point is taking the Lord's name in vain is to say the Lord is there or he blesses that or, or he's, he is, this, is, this is what's true of him when that's not the case. And so what we see here is Israel breaking that commandment. The Lord is with us. And where was the Lord? Not there. The Lord actually commanded 
something else. And that's why it's such a serious, even for today, we ought to be careful and test our words and propositions about God with scripture because it's a serious thing to say he's somewhere where he's not. You could, you could lead somebody by your counsel in one sense. I'm not, don't, don't throw too much sauce on it, but you can lead somebody to, a, to, to harm's way by what you say about how you testify to the Lord. So I know we're not at the Ten Commandments, but thought that was super applicable for here today for us. In Israel, when they did that, they came back and they wept. And the Lord does exactly what they did to him. He does not listen to them, which is, it, is also applicable for us right now. For those that don't know the Lord, right now. And I want to I speak to those that would say, maybe you're here, and man, I am just so grateful. We are grateful that you are here. If you don't know the Lord and you're trying to figure out what is Jesus Christ and what is this, this gospel that they keep talking about, why do these people keep going into this room and singing together and they're, they're happy about something, um, I'm just so grateful that you're here. But a word to you. There was a season of time for Israel to receive mercy and to respond to the command of God. God's mercy, come, obey, go, take possession of the land. And for us in the gospel, what Jesus offers us, forgiveness of sins by a simple faith, not by anything that we do, open-handed faith, humble faith, to come before and say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. God, you have provided a savior through Jesus Christ and he is my savior before you. My only plea in heaven is your son. That is the season that we're currently in. But just how God judged Israel with the promised land, there will be a day when the Lord will no longer listen and his hand of mercy is upheld and his other hand is holding back his judgment. And there will be a day in which both hands will fall and his judgment will pour forth. And so if you do not know the Lord, to go back to that serious question I asked at the beginning, what's the most dangerous and detrimental thing for you right now? It is your unbelief. If you do not know the Lord, do not presume like Israel that you are in a season of mercy forever. That season of mercy will end. But that doesn't have to be, that does not have to be your story. You can find joy in this life and the next through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no payment required. You don't have to dress a certain way. You just have to turn from your sins and believe in what the Lord has provided in the cross of Christ. To conclude, Matthew mentioned in his first sermon, real, real pivot of topics here. We're gonna go from talking about the gospel to Hittite treaties. Matthew mentioned that the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons, but that it also mirrors what a Hittite, Hittite treaty was back, back in the day. So these treaties were, were promises, covenants made between nation states, kind of like um, NATO or something else, between two, two different countries make an agreement on an economy or military based off of similar, um, similar um, desires and interests, and the thing about those Hittite treaties, this was, this was mirrored off of that to show that this is the Lord and his nation, in a sense. 
But every one of those Hittite treaties, treaties that probably Moses sat in Egypt with as Egypt was the superpower, and hey, you're great at military and you're great at Navy and we don't like the Amorites or whatever, so let's get together and go fight them. What would always start those meetings is the prologue, the context. And the beginning of it is pretty much saying, I, Egypt, am awesome and we do this really well. And here's a story of what we did. And we did this really great. And this is the story of said partner ally nation. And they go, you know, hi, my name is said nation. And I do this really well. And we're really great. And this is why you should partner with us. And that's the prologue before the meat of the covenant stipulations, between the treaty stipulations. That's important for our context with Deuteronomy. Because notice the difference between what would be in, a, in the world and what Moses is, again, pastoring us. Instead of it being two nations going, I'm awesome, you're awesome, let's partner together, it's very much a one-sided treaty. It is very much the Lord saying, I am faithful. Look at my wondrous deeds. I am trustworthy. And look at your unfaithfulness. So that being said, this story in Deuteronomy isn't the Lord browbeating us. Look at how faithless you are. It is in the context of our unfaithfulness that he is about to make a promise and a commitment to us in this story. This is the God of grace leading his people. But something greater than a Hittite treaty, as wonderful as those are if you study those in your hobby hours, is we have a greater treaty in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this treaty is something that we brag about, and it is our only boast. As serious as that is between nation states, we have God himself stepping out of time, out of eternity into time to save us through an eternal covenant by the blood of his son. And that is what we enjoy. And so our proper response, church, is to trust in Jesus in the face of our circumstances, in the face of whatever you're going through, Christian, because he has mightily saved you in the gospel and he cares for your every need through his Holy Spirit. Better than manna, he's given you himself. Let's pray. Father, you are a wonderful God. We are grateful to call you Father, grateful that you guide us. We're grateful that you go before us to fight us, to fight our enemies and to show us the way. Father, there's, there, are, there are circumstances and pains in this room, but I pray for those who are overwhelmed right now. They are broken because of, they're being choked out by their current circumstances, Lord. May the, the promise of this text and the promise of Jesus Christ comfort them, Lord. Would you please, please be with your church to encourage these individuals. Lord, provide God-ordained moments of intervention and of comfort to know that you are not disappointed with us, but that you love us and that you give us this story not to look down on us, but to invite us to a better way through your son. It's in your name we pray, amen.